Welcome to STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. Welcome to STEM Talk, where we introduce you to fascinating people who passionately inhabit the scientific and technical frontiers of our society. Hi, I'm your host, Don Cornegas, and joining me to introduce today's podcast is the man behind the curtain, Dr. Ken Ford, IHMC's director and chairman of the Double Secret Selection Committee that selects all the guests to appear on STEM Talk. Hi, Don. Great to be here today. So today's episode features a world-class athlete who also is beginning to appear on the world stage as a scientific researcher studying the benefits of ketones and their supplementation. Dr. Brianna Stubbs is the youngest person to ever row across the English Channel. She also won two gold medals while representing Great Britain in the World Rowing Championships. More recently, she has been in the news as part of a San Francisco-based company that just brought out one of the first commercial ketone esters to the market called Human Ketone. But before we talk to Brianna about the human ketone ester and her research, we have some housekeeping to take care of. We really appreciate all of you who have subscribed to STEM Talk, and we are especially appreciative of all the wonderful five-star reviews positively piling up on iTunes. These five-star reviews really help increase STEM Talk's visibility on iTunes. As we announced in earlier episodes, the Double Secret Selection Committee has been continually and carefully reviewing the iTunes reviews with an eye towards selecting the wittiest and most lavishly praise-filled reviews to read here on STEM Talk. If you hear your review read on STEM Talk, just contact us at stemtalk at ihmc.us to claim your official STEM Talk t-shirt. Today, our winning review was posted by someone who goes by the nickname Theo Yu, titled, A Delight to the Senses. It reads, plug into an episode of STEM Talk and strap in for a full experience. Your ears will be charmed with the deep timbre of Dr. Ken Ford's smooth voice. Your eyes will see how the frontiers of science are being changed by the work of brilliant guest speakers. Episode 14 with Dom Diagostino may have you tasting and smelling the ketones you test after being convinced on ketogenic diets. In all seriousness, this is the most mind-expanding podcast I can find. It has changed the very way I approach my own future in science as a STEM college student. Thank you, Theo Yu, and thank you to all the other STEM Talk listeners who have helped STEM Talk become such a great success. And now, on to today's interview with Dr. Brianna Stubbs. Dr. Brianna Stubbs earned her PhD in biochemical physiology from Oxford University in 2016, where she researched the effects of ketone drinks on elite athletes. In 2012, she graduated from Oxford's Pembroke College with a BA in preclinical sciences and planned to continue her studies to become a physician. But before pursuing her medical degree, she spent a year working as a research assistant helping to investigate the effect of exogenous ketones on human performance. She decided to become a research scientist and won a fellowship to Oxford to pursue a doctorate, which allowed her to investigate the physiological and metabolic effects of exogenous ketones. While doing this research, she also was a member of the Great Britain rowing team and in 2016 became the world champion in the lightweight women's quadruple skulls. Earlier in 2013, she won her first world championship in the lightweight women's double skull. Brianna moved to the States in June of 2017 to work at Human and has helped develop and roll out their ketone ester. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. Hi, I'm your host, Don Cornegas, and we're excited to welcome Brianna Stubbs to the podcast. Brianna, welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Dawn. 
Yeah, and also joining me today is my co-host and director of IHMC, Ken Ford. Hello, Don, and hello, Brianna. Hi. So, Brianna, first of all, I want to say congrats on bringing one of the first ketone esters to the commercial market. There certainly has been a lot of press that we've seen about the launch, and it must be a really exciting period in your life, among many as we will hear about during the podcast today. So, Brianna, now that the ketone ester is available for purchase, and we know that it's been a long time getting here, what's a quick rundown of the story that got it to this point? It's a long story, so I'll try and distill it down into 30 seconds or so for you. I mean, the initial funding for the research into ketone esters came about in the early 2000s. So the US military put out an RFP, a call for research proposals, for investigators to investigate a superfuel or a fueling for warfighters in battle. And Professor Kieran Clark and Dr. Richard Veach at the University of Oxford NIH won that grant, which amounted to about $10 million. Subsequent to that, they put in a lot of hard work screening out different compounds, improving the tolerability, going through a ton of regulatory procedures, and also carrying out animal studies first and moving into human studies to show that the ketone monoester that was developed as a result of their research was safe and also efficacious in terms of enhancing human performance and cognition. Um, And so I guess like where we've finished up now is that a company that's based in San Francisco has acquired the exclusive license to the patents around that ketone ester and they're bringing it to market now. Brianna, the human ester has been approved by the FDA as generally recognized as safe or gross. Can you expand on what this means in terms of human use and what the what the value of the grass status is? Yes, uh, and that's a great point to bring up. What's unique about this ketone ester compared with other ingestible ketones that are out there at the moment is that the FDA has looked at the evidence around the safety of this ketone monoester and says that it's absolutely fine to add into the food supply under the sort of specific use cases for um, athletes and performance. So what happens is the uh, you know. University of Oxford group put together a dossier, all of the information regarding the human and animal studies that had been done to date, and also the predicted uses, amounts, and regularity that people would be taking the ketone ester as athletes. And then an independent panel of experts review all of that data. It's called a grass exemption, so it means that you don't need to have special permission from the FDA to approve it. It's kind of considered as safe. Brianna, before we go into detail about the work you're doing at Human, let's talk a little bit about your background first. It seems obvious that you've always had an interest in athletics, but what about science? I've heard that you were the type of kid who dissected the giblets while your mother cooked the turkey. Yeah, I mean, I always had a fascination with like working out how things were working and just trying to get a little bit deeper than just what I was being told. So any chance I had, I was kind of elbows deep in, in whatever whatever was around me, trying to <laughs> trying to understand it a little bit better, doing science experiments from a very early age. Elbows deep, literally and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're small, Turkey, you have to put your hand in quite a long way to get at the giblets. So. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I had a good image there. <laughs> a birdie, speaking of turkeys, a birdie has informed me, as birdies do, that you were seven years old when you ran your first race and that you ran so hard you made yourself sick. Is this birdie a reliable source? Yeah, I mean, I was doing a one-mile race around the local park and my dad was chasing me and following me and shouting me to go harder and harder and I'm intensely competitive. And I remember coming into the finishing straight and this one little girl coming up next to me and trying to overtake me and sprinting super hard and getting over the line and just puking up everywhere. (laughs) But um, I mean, that's how I've kind of always approached everything. 
definitely don't let anyone get past you. Push yourself super hard. Although that said, in all my time uh, as an elite athlete, I never managed to push myself so hard that I puked. I mean, I could hurt myself an awful lot, but maybe maybe my nutrition wasn't quite optimal for that one mile race, let's just say. Maybe I'd eaten a bit <laughs> soon beforehand. Yeah, you needed a delicious ketone ester. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would have just made it all better. <laughs> So your father is the one who got you interested in rowing, and I understand that when you were six years old, he signed up for the first ever rowing race across the Atlantic Ocean. And this was a little odd because he had never actually rowed himself before. <laughs> is this true? Yeah, no, this is true. So um, back in the early 90s, more men had been on the moon than had rowed successfully across the Atlantic Ocean. And my dad, uh, he was a firefighter. He'd had been in the military, but he was very adventurous and very outdoorsy and athletic. And he saw an article in one of the British newspapers. And it was a little bit like um, the ad for the Shackleton expedition. It was kind of like Shea Blythe, who was the organizer of the race, seeks men for ocean rowing adventure. And my dad, something uh, sparked inside him when he saw that advertisement. And he decided that was something that he desperately wanted to do. Uh, didn't really matter that he hadn't rowed before. So he got one of his buddies together. His buddy hadn't rowed ever before either. And the two of them went down to the local rowing club and tried to explain to the slightly uh, bemused captains of the club what they were trying to do. And Actually, the guy who taught my dad to row ended up teaching me to row myself. And he always used to like to tell me the stories of how my dad had got in the one-person boat and kept falling in and kept falling in. But luckily, the ocean rowing boats, they're an awful lot more stable than the fine river boats that I rode in. So in the end of the day, he didn't have to be as technically competent. You just had to be able to go and go and go and go and go for many days on end. Um, but it was, it was fantastically inspirational to grow up watching him do that and put his mind to something you know no, there was no there was no obstacle for him he just put his mind to it and overcame we know where you get that from then <laughs> i think the the environment that you're in as you grow up it's a really important part of the attitude that you take to things as as you're older and i certainly was very lucky to be to be growing up with my dad and my mum not putting any limits on me and not not adhering to any limits themselves. So that's fantastic and as a little girl you used to run and roll a lot with your father as he was training for these races then when you were 12 years old, you ended up rowing across the English Channel with your father and became the youngest person ever to do so. So how did that come about? Uh, so it kind of off the back of what I was just saying, I, I remember going into my dad and he was working away in the office planning the row and I kind of interrupted him and I was like, Dad, can I come with you? And he'd always sort of joked about taking me across the Atlantic and my mum would never have let that happen. <laughs> but he sort of sat me down. And he was like, well, OK, let's have a think. You know, we do these long training rows as practice for for the ocean rowing race. How about we see if, if there's something that we can do with you? And really, the English Channel, it's not that long. We crossed uh, not at the shortest place, uh, which is Dover to Calais. We actually crossed a little bit further down the coast from where I grew up in Poole to Cherbourg. So it's more like 60 or 70 miles rather than 20 miles. So it was going to be about 24 hours of rowing. And we got permission from the Coast Guards. We had a support vessel and it was a fantastic experience. It was, I remember it being so flat and I was rowing in shifts with my dad and his crew. And in the middle of the night, the channel being very still, but also it's very busy. There's quite a lot of big uh, oil tankers going up and down. And so the lights from the ships and the moon, and it was very ethereal. And it would have been great apart from the fact that I was really, really seasick. And so was my dad. So we were kind of alternating looking at the moon with sharing a bucket. It was, it was sort of 
poetic it was uh, there's a word for it but i can't remember what it is where where it's sort of also very elevated but also kind of very um base as well. <laughs> that sounds like just an incredible memory. So while you and your father were off running and rowing, what was your mother doing and what was she like? She was the glue that held our family together. I mean, she she didn't have the same insatiable desire for adventure that my dad had, but she always supported him and always supported me as well. Although that said, she actually took part in a uh, cycle fundraising event that went through all the way through Jordan to raise money for breast cancer awareness. So she's active herself, but um, much more uh, facilitator and supporter and our greatest like kind of cheerleader and that was hugely valuable as, as as valuable as my dad sort of being the one that's pushing pulling me along doing these crazy things what an incredible family environment and then you won your first international rowing event when you were 16 and then at 18 you won a silver medal at the junior world championships so what was your training schedule like as a teenager it's funny how looking back um, everything seemed much more intense at the time. So I think at the time when I was a teenager, I would train once a day, maybe, or maybe five days a week. So it was not as as much as when I was training at university. And then when I trained in the national team, it was more. But when you're at school, and you've got lessons all planned out, it always felt like it was a dash to try and fit training in around. So yeah, I think I would say I was training at least an hour a day, five to six days a week as a teenager. And that that ramped up the older that I got and the more competitive that I got, because you'd combine training on the water with training on the rowing machine and also strength training in the gym, which is hugely uh, important as you're a developing athlete. You want to make sure that you've got uh, good muscle strength and stability to avoid injuries as you're, as you're increasing your training load. You continued to have terrific success as a rower, winning a gold medal at the 2013 and 2016 World Championships. What does it feel like to be the best in the world at something? It's, it's a great question. And uh, as you ask it, it kind of brings back a lot of memories as to the feeling of crossing the line. And the two times that I won the World Championship were both quite different. The very first time that I won the World Championships in 2013, it was in the under 23 lightweight double skulls. And I remember that being massive elation. We had a lot of sort of youthful energy uh, in that in that two-person boat and we were very scrappy and we'd really enjoyed all of the build-up for the competition. And I remember crossing the line and it all being a very, very big positive rush of emotions. And kind of in contrast, 2016, there was a lot more that had gone into that as a performance. I'd been training, trying to be in the Olympic boat. And so there was a lot of... Um, maybe disappointment in having not been to the Olympics and therefore this real kind of gritty determination to prove a point. And I know that the other three girls in my boat felt the same. And so when we crossed the line, there was, it was, it was a like a, ha, so there, we did it um, more. It was just a different emotion, but very, very intense and uh, something I'll never forget and something that I feel very privileged to have been able to experience. And it grows as you reflect on it, I think. It gives you kind of like a confidence in yourself. And I think that that's really valuable. And Brianna, what's even more impressive is that during your years of peak success as a rower, you were also at Oxford, first in medical school and then shifted into a PhD program. So you must have been very, very busy. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was thinking about doing my PhD and moving into the national team. And so many people told me, there's just no way you're going to fit all of that in a day. Um, and I remember sitting down at the time being like, well, that's okay. And like, you, you can add up all of the hours, but it's actually, 
having downtime and having time to recuperate and mentally and physically recover from the training, which is mentally and physically demanding, and then the PhD, which is maybe a less physically demanding, but mentally very and emotionally very demanding as well. So I don't think I could have done it for very many more years than I did, but I was very lucky to have a lot of support from my family, my fiancé, and my group at the lab and then sort of over time as the rowing coaches realized what the PhD was giving me in terms of something else to be doing they they valued it more and got on board with helping me tweak my training schedule as well so in the, in the end it was successful but it, it took a bit of refining to try and make my schedule work to start with it was difficult as a rower you mainly competed as a lightweight what did that mean in terms of preparing for competition from both a nutritional and a training standpoint? Well, I mean, it completely moves the goalposts, if I'm honest. So a lightweight woman rower has to be 125 pounds on race day, and that's two hours before racing. So you can't do extreme fluid manipulation, extreme sweating or extreme cutting like some fighting sports do because they have a whole day to replenish their stores before they compete. So you really have to get the most out of your body composition Um, in order to be as strong as you can but also light and on the weight. So the way that the season would work is over the winter, we were allowed to be at a heavier weight. And then gradually throughout the spring, the weight limit for the trials would come down and down and down. And we would, we were personally quite responsible for managing our own nutrition. um, And then also kind of doing any acute weight making that we needed to do in order to make weight on the day. And for me, that kind of changed over time. So the first few years that I was competing as a lightweight, um, I made weight very easily and didn't have to watch my diet super closely and also didn't really ever have to do any acute weight making. But especially in the last season that I was a lightweight, I had a body composition DEXA scan done. I was 10% body fat, so I was very lean um, and we were doing quite a lot of weight training. So I had quite, quite a good amount of muscle mass. So I was having to do more and more acute weight making. And a couple of times I would sweat maybe a kilogram or a kilogram and a half in the few hours before the race just to be making making the race weight. So it changed over time and it certainly added an extra interesting element that you had to manage along with your performance. Yeah. And Brianna, the problems that are associated with excess training, stress and inappropriate energy balance in female athletes was previously called the female athlete triad. It includes bone loss, amenorrhea and anorexia. Anorexia, but it's now been renamed Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, or RED-S, in part because it also has been known to affect males. Did you experience any physiological issues associated with competing as a lightweight athlete, as you've been describing? And was this something that you saw in your male colleagues as well? Yes. I mean, I certainly did have to balance issues like that. So for the last two and a half years that I was competing as a lightweight, I was on hormone replacement therapy. And how how that came about is that that I was training and and studying and just getting very, very fatigued, um, not recovering at all between sessions. And my mood was very low and my physical performance scores were tailing off. And so I had a series of blood tests done and it revealed that I had virtually no estrogen in my system. It was very similar to a postmenopausal woman. So I saw a specialist gynecologist in London and he set me up with hormone replacement therapy, which is the sort of thing that you would be having postmenopausally. And when I went onto that, it was incredible. It was like over two weeks, the lights just got switched back on. I had much better energy and my mood was much better. And it was 
transformative, really, for me to be able to train. That said, over the time as as I continued to train and continued to use the HRT, it seemed like I needed more and more of it to get the same effect. And so by the end of, of my time with the British rowing team, I was on twice as much HRT as I had been at the start, but still still struggling with fatigue and things like that. So I, I'm not sure whether there was a just a kind of a homeostatic effect of my body saying, like, this is just too small for you, that in time, you know, I couldn't, couldn't have sustained it for much longer. And I know that a lot of the other female lightweight athletes had a similar problem. It was difficult to say whether men in the team had the same issues. I mean, nobody discussed this sort of thing mm-hmm. amongst themselves that much because it was a competitive advantage and the guys wouldn't necessarily talk to us about it. So I think... Um, I wouldn't like to comment as to whether it was an issue for them or not, potentially. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you have any thoughts on how coaches or nutritionists and sports scientists could better support their athletes to prevent these issues as much as possible? I think one thing that made it difficult for me was that we were training in a centralized system. So I had one coach who was overseeing sort of three or four athletes and all of those athletes were in competition with one another. And so there wasn't much scope to kind of personalize and really tweak what you were doing in terms of the training anyway in order to get the best result for you. And so I think if you're a female athlete doing a high volume of training, if you've got a good relationship with your coach and you know that your coach is really 100% looking out for you and you can change the training so that if you are underfueled, the training is is more appropriate, then I think that that is better. I think the main message would be that you need to personalize everything as much as possible. It's difficult reflecting as well because I was thinking, you know, perhaps you need to very meticulously monitor your calories in and monitor your energy expenditure sort of outside of training as well as inside training to really get a picture of what you need to be eating to be calorie balanced. But as an athlete, you're already kind of, you feel like a machine, you feel a little bit dehumanized, you're all about your physical outputs and performances. And I would keep a food diary kind of periodically. So for maybe like a week at a time, every six weeks or so. And the times when I was logging all of my food, it just turns into this massive grind. And I enjoy food and it just made it this thing that I didn't enjoy. So, I mean, I think there's a balance to be had between being an athlete and a machine and and also a person and able to kind of enjoy things as well and do things by feel. Those are just a few reflections. I mean, I think it's difficult. Elite sport is difficult. And there's the temptation is always to push, 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 push and do more training. And, you know, if you're not making weight to restrict your calories even more, but actually that's more often than not counterproductive. So you need people who are sensible to tell you when you're not eating enough and when you're doing too much training. Mm. I think that's and someone that you trust and that, that you know that they're they've got your best interests at heart when they're telling you to do that. It was during this time while you were at Oxford that you noticed there was a study being done on the effects of ketone esters on rowers. And I understand that you reached out and then became directly involved in the study. Can you tell us a little bit about how this all happened? Yes. So this was before I was rowing with the national team. I was rowing for the Oxford University Women's Boat Club in the race against Cambridge. And so we were quite plugged in to the sports physiology and the sports research that was being done in Oxford and around. And we were sent an email circular saying, come along 
make some money and do these rowing machine tests that we would have been doing as part of our training anyway. So the tests that were being looked at was a 30 minute rowing machine test and also a two kilometer rowing machine test. And I didn't much like the two kilometer rowing machine test because that's <laughs> short, sharp and pretty painful. But the 30 minute test, we were doing those weekly anyway. And so I thought it was an excellent opportunity to kind of contribute, um, find out a little bit more about human physiology research that was going on at Oxford and also uh, kind of finance my first, second year student like going out and eating and drinking habits <laughs> strapped for cash as a first year. That's, that's always helpful when you're a student is to jump into a, into a research study for sure. <laughs> Make a little yeah. extra cash and learn while you're doing it. And maybe learn something, exactly. Yeah. So on that note, can you share with us your decision to postpone your medical school training to devote more time to researching ketones? Yes. Yeah, so I was very, very lucky to have a, an excellent advisor in my college at Oxford, Dr. Jeremy Taylor. He oversees all of the teaching of the undergraduates in, in Pembroke College, Oxford. At the time, I didn't really want to stop doing medical school because I wanted to be with my peers and I was worried about getting off the treadmill as it were and worried that that it might not be the right decision but he sat me down and he was like you have this fantastic opportunity and to research something that you're very interested in it will also allow you to combine research with sport at a high level and he said that he'd seen a lot of people miss out on opportunities like this and regret it and also a lot of people go away pursue something else for a bit of time and come back to medicine. He, you know, the words will all stick with me, you know, you'll be able to come back and do medicine whenever you like. Medicine will always be here. If you want to come back, you can. And that gave me the confidence to take the decision to postpone medical school. And, you know, it was some of the best advice I've ever been given. And it was it was a great decision. So, Brianna, I understand the team from Human, including the CEO, visited Oxford and that you sort of invited yourself to dinner and convinced them that they needed to hire you to help roll out the ketone ester. Is that how you ended up in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean... Uh, when you put it like that, it sounds kind of cheeky, but I mean, um, I kind of, yeah, that's that's pretty much what happened. Uh, they came and they they presented to a group of us at Oxford, the people who worked with Professor Kieran Clark and lots of members of our group, and they talked about the experience that they had taking kind of novel compounds and turning them into consumer packaged goods and all of the ways that they'd engaged with the press and the community that they were building and, and the journey that they'd taken with the company going from looking at brain health through to using fasting as a way to optimize brain health and performance and from fasting onto ketones as this really interesting central um, signaling part of fasting and that's how they'd ended up in touch with Professor Clark and I remember listening to the story and listening to their plans for the future of the ketone ester and just feeling really really excited <laughs> I'd been working on it for and involved then for maybe five or six years in some in some capacity as a participant through to, to doing the research myself and it just seemed like the next chapter was about to start and I really 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 wanted to be part of it somehow and not just disappear off into you know like I don't know the, into uh, some city job in London or anything like that so um, yeah I, I arranged to meet up with them and chatted to them about my skill set and all the experience I'd had as an athlete and the experience I had as a researcher and what I thought I could contribute to the project of, of bringing it to the market and just educating people because I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we're facing at the moment and luckily they agreed with me that I could add value and so that's how I ended up in San Francisco. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds as if you hit the ground running once you moved to San Francisco and start working on the launch of the Ketone. What has your first year in the States been like? Yeah, I mean, it's been terrifically busy and I've learned an awful lot. As a research scientist, you get this fantastic skill set that's sort of very analytical and very detailed. And I feel like actually having the opportunity to work 
in a company has given me a whole other skill set. I mean, you know, learning to talk to press and learning to talk to investors and athletes as well and having to change how you communicate the message to everyone so that, that you meet them at their level and that they understand it. That's been very valuable. And I'm hoping that the skills that I'm learning through working at Human are going to kind of carry me forwards as, as this project develops and whatever whatever else the future holds. So, Brianna, let's talk about the Human Ketone Ester. A bottle of the supplement provides 25 grams of beta-hydroxybutyrate, one of the ketone bodies that the body naturally produces during a fast or a period of starvation. So what happens after someone consumes a bottle? Yeah, so as you say, the human ketone product contains beta-hydroxybutyrate butane-dial monoester. And so what happens when you drink that is the ester itself is hydrolyzed into two parts, beta-hydroxybutyrate and butane-dial. And these can be taken up into the blood through monocarboxylate transporters from the gut through into the portal blood. The monocarboxylate transporter is pretty ubiquitously expressed throughout the gut and also the hydrolyzed enzymes that break that ester bond, they're pretty ubiquitously expressed as well because we consume esters in our diet routinely. So uh, you've got the two parts of the ketone in your portal bloodstream and that goes to the liver. The liver um, is the only organ in the body that actually can't oxidize ketones and that's an evolutionary adaptation to make sure that the ketones that are being produced in the liver aren't consumed by the liver. So when the BHB gets to the liver, it passes on through. The butane dial fraction of the ester it undergoes first pass metabolism into beta-hydroxybutyrate. So for each one molecule of ketone ester that you consume, you end up with two parts beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood. And so that means that within half an hour, 45 minutes of taking one bottle of uh, human ketone, which is 25 grams, your blood ketone levels will be equivalent to as if you had been fasting for 10 days. So maybe, I mean, it, it depends on your size, but we've seen people get to anywhere between three to seven millimoles. Actually, the other day I took a bottle myself as part of a live demo we were doing and I hit 7.1. So and within, I think that was 45 minutes. So it's pretty rapid and pretty profound keto, deep ketosis after one drink. Have you given any thought to any possible consequences of supplementing with only beta-hydroxybutyrate? It has occurred to me that there might be a reason the liver produces roughly equal amounts of acetoacetate in beta-hydroxybutyrate. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on whether this, uh, I'll use the word unnatural, uh, balance has any possible impact? I mean, that's a great question. Um, I suppose the first thing that I'd say is that actually in physiology, you do see ratios of BHB to acetoacetate that isn't always one-to-one. -one. So especially as you fast for longer, you see that BHB increases more than acetoacetate. So for reference there, I'd refer to the work of George Cahill um, and mm -hmm. uh, I don't know his first name, but Owen, Owen and Cahill with their prolonged fasting study where they fasted people for 40 days. And you see over time that BHB plateaus at sort of somewhere six to seven millimoles, whereas acetoacetate stays around one. So it's not completely unnatural to have more BHB than acetoacetate. The other point that, that I think is relevant here is that as the ketone ester is passing through the liver, some of it is going to be converted into acetoacetate. There's BHB and acetoacetate are in equilibrium. 
they are interconverted by the enzyme beta-hydroxybutyrate dehydrogenase. And so we, after dosing with the ketone ester, which delivers only BHB, we can measure acetoacetate in the blood. So there is some natural conversion of BHB to acetoacetate. Something that Dr. Clark and Dr. Veach feel is that BHB is energetically more favourable than acetoacetate because it undergoes, as I said, conversion into acetoacetate and that generates NADH. And NADH is what's donating protons and electrons to the electron transport chain. So energetically, supplementing with BHB is going to generate more NADH and make the mitochondria more reduced. That's how I'd answer that question. I don't know whether I've answered it sort of sufficiently. I, I think so. Um, looking back on the Cahill study, um, I can't even imagine proposing a study like that to an IRB mm. now. No. <laughs> no. It's funny how ethics has changed over the years. I, I'm not sure if it's ethics that's changed, but our yeah. uh, we've become very risk-averse. The legal yes. system has. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit of a barrier to progress, hopefully, um, but I mean, people have people's safety has to come first. So the work that you were doing with Dr. Clark suggests that drinking ketones alongside a high carb meal like pizza delivers a powerful performance boost. Are the carbs necessary to get the full performance boost of the supplement? Dawn, you sound like uh, the headlines of some of the articles that we've had this week. You know, I've been reading them. With donuts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's been quite frustrating because in the studies we didn't give anyone pizza. It was nothing nothing that exciting. It was just actually the gold standard carbohydrates that athletes are recommended to take prior to and during exercise. So that's uh, multiple transportable carbohydrates so that you don't saturate any one of the carbohydrate uptake transporters uh, at a dose of about 60 grams per hour, I believe. And so, yes, to come back to the question, we saw that ketones by themselves were equivalent to carbohydrates by themselves. And in order to get the full performance boost, you did need to take ketones alongside carbohydrates. That state where you have high carbohydrate availability and high ketones seems like something that would not typically naturally occur. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think you've completely hit the nail on the head. And what ketone supplements and this ketone ester has created is a completely novel physiological state whereby athletes can have replete glycogen and carbohydrate stores as well as elevated ketones. And that means that the body can really choose between which fuel it wants to use. And uh, what we've seen is that the ketones seem to be burned preferentially, sparing carbohydrates for later in exercise. And that's one of the key contributors to the improvement in endurance performance with athletes taking ketones alongside carbohydrates. But yeah, it's new, it's novel, it's exciting, and there's a lot more research to be done to understand how we can exploit it. You can imagine that it would be a great advantage in many sports because most sports are both aerobic and anaerobic in nature. And, and uh, you know, even a sport like wrestling, I can imagine uh, sparing the glycogen stores for when you really need them could be a real advantage. Yeah, for sure. I think the evidence at the moment is kind of inconclusive about like glycogen resynthesis, but glycogen sparing is certainly an effect that is is very profound with supplementing with exogenous ketones prior to exercise. Sabrina, we know that some ergogenic agents such as anabolics or EPO are used as training aids. Would you speculate that ketone esters are best utilized as a training aid as opposed to being acutely administered pre-event? 
Well, I mean, again, I'm going to take issue with exactly how you phrased the question because anabolic aids and EPO, the way that they're working is is signaling rather than as a fuel. And the way that we understand how the ketone ester is working for athletes at the moment is predominantly as a fuel role. Although that said, ketones have a whole host of interesting signaling roles. So in terms of just providing the body with extra energy, Prior to the workout and post a workout, it's a fuel, not a sort of an anabolic signal or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I think, yes, I think long term, it'll be as more research is done, the roles of ketones in training is going to be something that is of increasing importance. So there have been two studies to date that have looked at taking ketones post workout, and they've seen that ketones could potentially enhance glycogen resynthesis. Although that said, the second study also looked at glycogen resynthesis and found no effect. But that second study also found that ketone esters activated mTOR signaling. So it looks like could help athletes recover during a heavy training block. And also a lot of the work of Volek and Finney showed that ketones are antioxidants and anti-inflammatory. So that could be really useful for athletes as well. So I think maybe in the end, we'll end up with different formulations of human ketone, one that's specifically for performance and one that's more tailored towards recovery, maybe that combines ketones with amino acids and carbohydrates and can be taken as a post-workout drink rather than as a pre-workout drink. So there's solid evidence that the human ketone ester improves athletic performance, at least uh, I think there is. What about cognitive performance? Yeah, well, I mean, evolutionarily, ketones evolved to provide a fuel for the brain. So mechanistically, there's a very sound basis for assuming that ketones are going to be energetically helpful for the brain. In terms of human studies, the evidence around ketone esters is is limited and there's more work that needs to be done to to really explore whether taking human ketone can improve cognitive performance. But the animal work is very compelling. So um, mice solving a radial maze were solving it about one third faster having consumed ketone esters compared with consuming a standard Western diet. So I'm certainly hopeful that in the future, some work will will emerge that will shed a bit more light on how ketones can help with the brain. And, And also subjectively, people after taking human ketone do report feeling more clarity, more focus. And that could arguably be because ketones are providing a fuel for the brain that it's enhancing cognitive function. Brianna, you just talked about a cognitive study in mice with ketone esters. Um, We know that there are a number of different studies out there. Can you talk about some of these animal studies that are being conducted on ketone esters and their impact on physical and cognitive performance? Yes. So um, the study that I was referring to was done in the University of Oxford. They gave the mice ketone ester for seven days and each day ran the mice to exhaustion on the treadmill and also made the mice solve the maze. And the guy who ran that experiment was actually my examiner for my PhD thesis. His name is Andrew Murray and he's now senior researcher at University of Cambridge. He um, told me the story of when they were running the study, it was awful to run because the ketone mice were just running for so much longer than they expected. They were in the lab until 2 a.m. and then having to get up at 6 a.m. to to run the mice and run all of the mice through in the day as well. So I think that's it's a great anecdote. And <laughs> I, I, every, everyone's got a story like that from their PhD, which I think is yeah. great. But along alongside the physical and cognitive kind of studies across the world, actually, and in Florida, the University of South Florida, there's some really interesting studies 
studies being done looking at ketone supplementation for health as well as just for performance. So I know that Dr. Angela Poff has run a great study looking at ketone supplementation and cancer. And there's a there's a ton of interesting work done that takes the potential applications for exogenous ketones much, much further than just a sports drink. And I'm really excited to see that happen in the future. Yeah, we are too. And while you were working on your doctorate, you also researched ketone salts. Can you explain for our listeners the difference between ketone salts and ketone esters and also kind of give us an overview of what the advantages and disadvantages are for each? So um, as I described earlier, ketone ester means that the ketone precursors are bound to one another by an ester bond. So there's no acid load and no minerals in that compound. By contrast, ketone salts contain BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate or acetoacetate bound to a mineral such as sodium, potassium, calcium. And so for each one molecule that's being delivered, you also have mineral coming into the body as well. So this seems to affect the kinetics of of the uh, ketones in the blood. So I actually studied this in a fair bit of detail. I gave matched amounts of beta-hydroxybutyrate as a ketone ester and also as a ketone salt. And I saw that the levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood were far lower with the salt than with the ester. Part of that could be because the salt solutions are quite concentrated. And so that might have slowed diffusion from the gut into the blood. But another interesting consideration is that when you produce a salt externally, ketone salt externally to the body, these tend to be racemic, which means that it's a mixture of optical isoforms of ketone. So uh, the way I like to think about it is we have a left hand and a right hand. They've We've got four fingers and a thumb on each, but you can't overlay your left and right hand. And it's the same for some molecules in biology. And beta-hydroxybutyrate is one of those molecules that has left-handed and right-handed forms. And so when you make a ketone salt on the bench, it ends up being half left-handed and half right-handed. And our body is adapted to only use one particular form. So half of that that you ingest as a ketone salt is, is the form that the body's not really used to seeing. The, the advantage of doing that is that it's cheaper. It starts to get expensive when you have to purify the two optical isoforms. And that's part of the reason that the ketone ester is has been expensive up until this point, because the precursors used are only pure D, beta-hydroxybutyrate, only pure right-handed form. So um, when I went away and saw that these levels of ketones were much lower with the racemic salt, I was interested to figure out what was going on and see if the presence of the optical isomers explained any of the differences that I'd seen. And sure enough, when I measured total beta-hydroxybutyrate using mass spectrometry rather than enzymatic analysis, I saw that total ketone levels were similar to the ester. So half of or more than half of what I was measuring in the blood with the mass spec was LBHB. And I saw that the levels of LBHB stayed higher for much longer. Um, just to, I don't know whether I said, but LBHB is the form that the body doesn't produce and release itself in very high quantities. And so that form of ketone stayed high for a very long period of time. And it didn't look like it was being oxidized for energy in the same way as D-beta-hydroxybutyrate. So if you're an athlete and you're looking to take ketones in order to use them as an oxidizable fuel source, it would be advantageous to supplement with D-BHB precursors, whether that's a pure D-BHB salt or whether that's a ketone ester that delivers pure DBHB rather than a mixture of the two isoforms. For a multi-day race such as the Pro Touring Cycling Circuit, 
How do you envision people using the ketone esters as part of their nutrition plan during the race? Oh, that's an interesting question. So recently, especially around the launch of human ketone, I've been in touch with a lot of the athletes that have used the ketone ester in the past and really got a feel for how they felt it performed best for them. And um, what came back is actually lots of athletes are using it in different ways. So I know some athletes that use it at the end of the day, if they've had a particularly tough day and they've got another, they described it as like another bumpy, bumpy stage the next day. So using it to speed and accelerate their recovery and reduce muscle soreness, they reported using it for those reasons. But also I know athletes that have taken it during ultra long Ironman distance triathlons. So I think it'll be quite varied. And I think more research needs to be done so that we really understand how best to serve these athletes uh, with their different use cases. Has there been a study to look at the effects of chronic ketone ester administration on performance? I, I understand the, what we think are the acute effects, but if somebody mm. just was on you know, a very long chronic path, have we looked at that? No, I mean, one of the big limiting factors to date has been the supply of the ketone ester and how difficult it's been to get hold of enough of it to run a study like that. And also, in just in terms of workload and, and getting funding for a study like that, to do that at a high standard would require a, a lot of work and a lot of ketone ester. So it's not been done yet, but I'm really hopeful that it will be done in the near future. And I kind of speculate that it's the sort of thing where training for a, a block of training, maybe two or three weeks with ketone ester, would uh, accelerate pathways involved in fat oxidation and also allow the athlete to complete a greater volume of training at a higher quality because of the recovery benefits of, of taking exogenous ketones. But it'd be interesting to see because I know there's a lot of debate in the field at the moment about hormesis, so whether you want, want to be stressing the body or whether you want to be supporting the body and actually that it's a balance between stressors and making sure that you don't overreach uh, that drives maximal adaptation. So, I mean, it's unclear at this stage, but I, I'm optimistic optimistic that ketones will be a useful strategy for athletes to use for periodized blocks of training. As with any nutritional strategy, I think periodization will be key. Brianna, let's talk about the study in cell metabolism that was published last year that looked at ketone metabolism in elite athletes. I found it interesting that you were originally a participant in the study as an athlete, and then you became one of the study's research assistants, which must have been interesting to experience as a transition. Can you tell us about this study? Yes. So um, the, one of the key driving forces behind this study and one of the key reasons that actually made me transition from one end of the needle to the other was Dr. Pete Cox, and he's a MD, PhD at the time he was doing his PhD. He did decathlon for New Zealand and he just had absolute boundless energy for finding athletes and, and a real meticulous eye for study design. So um, when I look back at the paper, I can just really see the fruits of all his hard work because each study stacks on top of one another really nicely. So the very first study that's presented is looking at ketone kinetics at rest and then increasing the exercise intensity. So showing that ketones are, with identical doses of ketones, levels decrease with exercise and then decrease as the exercise intensity increases. So giving us a really good indication that ketones are being used to fuel activity. And then the next two studies looked at the effects of ketones on blood and also on muscle metabolite levels during steady state exercise. And so that gave us a bit of a window into this unique physiological state of replete fed ketosis and how ketones were 
exerting hierarchical preference over other fuel sources that would normally be being burnt at these type of exercise intensity. So the athletes were exercising for 16 minutes at 75% of their maximum wattage, which is pretty intense and recognised to be normally very heavily dependent on carbohydrate. But as, as we talked about earlier, we were seeing very, very profound glycogen sparing and also lower levels of lactic acid, suggesting that ketones were inhibiting or slowing carb burning but allowing the equivalent work, which is really, really exciting. Then in the final study presented in the paper was the performance study, and that was where we showed that ketones were able to improve endurance performance by 2.3%, I believe, was the, the kind of actual figure. A lot of people have said, oh, well, is that relevant? But actually... Um, if you look at the margins between athletes at elite sports and and from my own personal experience, 2% is, is certainly significant. And the Olympic road race back in Rio, 2% difference would have taken you from first to eighth. So I think at an elite level, this is certainly a significant finding and... Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. And just for our listeners, the title of that paper was Nutritional Ketosis Alters Fuel Preference and Thereby Endurance Performance in Athletes. And we will make sure that we provide a link to that paper in our show notes. Um, so I'm curious, when conducting these studies, how did you blind people to which was the ester and which was <laughs> not? Because we know how bitter that ester tastes. Mm. Uh, so actually, we it, it was funny, actually, because to go to a, a chemical company and ask them to make you something that tastes really bad, because <laughs> normally you're going going the other way around. But we worked with a food additives company who had a super, super sweet sweetener that was so sweet that when you open the uh, little vial that it was in, you could taste it in the air just from having opened it. It was that many, many, many times sweeter than sugar. So we used that to mask the taste of the ketone ester. Uh, and you only need sort of couple of specks of this in the drink to make it very, very sweet. Mm -hmm. And then for the placebo drink, we would use a very, an equally strong bitterness additive. So both drinks were pretty nasty. And also the athletes were not habitually consuming either of these compounds. So they just thought they were having nasty tasting drink. And also the uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate monoester, it's not that viscous. So it, it wouldn't have had, having tried both of the drinks, you couldn't tell from the consistency. In fact, actually, I worked with a master's student to test the blinding and he had a little bit like you'd get at a bar, like a, a flight of ketone shots. And some of them had ketones in them, some of them didn't. And we had different amounts of the bitterness additive, different amounts of the sweetener. And we would go around the lab and uh, I think it was like one to five and people had to guess whether it had ketone in it or whether it was placebo. And people people couldn't tell just this was people in and around the lab. And some of those guys would have tried the monoester before. So I think we were quite successful with blinding. But I mean, there's always more that you can do. And that's something that as more athletes have experience of these esters in order to properly blind the study that we, we should continue to address different ways of giving it. For the purpose of studies like this, would it be feasible to put the agents into capsules to avert the possible confounding effects of distinguishing the rather unique taste. Yeah, that's an excellent suggestion. And I actually was speaking to Professor Dominic D'Agostino the other day, and he said that he had done encapsulation of his ketone ester before with some success. So I think that follows really nicely on from my previous point. I think in the future, in order to really, really blind people, we could definitely look at encapsulating it. The only drawback there would be that if you wanted to take 25 mils, you're going to be swallowing a lot of horse tranquilizer-sized mm. capsules. So, I mean, that's that might not be that pleasant. I, I think it would be preferable to continue to blind with a bitterness additive in a drink, but it's definitely something that should be monitored because proper blinding is a very important part to ensure that there's no placebo effect.
uh, in his sports science studies. Yeah, and on that note, what do you think are the important factors in running a successful and accurate sports science study? Oh, that's a great question. I think... Um, Reflecting on the studies that we ran at Oxford, it's interesting because a lot of our endpoints and a lot of the data that we report focuses on the metabolism, which you can't bluff. You can't decide to manipulate your blood lactate levels just because you think you've had ketone ester or not. So blinding is is certainly very important to make sure that there's no placebo effect. But also, I think that the quality of participants that you have is massively important and whether they properly buy into the study as well. And that was something I learned to my detriment. So I did a very short research project just in my third year of medical school. So it was sort of like sort of like a master's. And I recruited a ton of my friends to come and do this project. And it was looking at um, muscle oxygen kinetics with ketone drinks. It wasn't anything that technical or exciting. But I had a couple of friends turn up and they had been out drinking the night before and they weren't very kind of, they weren't fit to participate in the study or they weren't, they weren't still drunk. But <laughs> you, you need to, uh, people that are really, really reliable. And especially in some of these exercise studies where we're taking repeated muscle biopsy samples, it's invasive and you need people who are really going to buy in to and, and, and athletes as well you tell athletes not to go out training the day before you they come in and do a study visit and you have to be really on making sure that they adhere to that and that they're going to be honest with you otherwise they're not going to give you good results and I think that that's something that isn't really reported that well in sports science studies and I think as an athlete I know that the session that I did the day before is massively going to affect my performance the next day and if I've been out and actually done a cheeky half marathon the day before I go in and do an exercise study that's you know when you've only got an n of 10 if you have one person that hasn't adhered properly to your pre-test requirements that's that's a big Mm -hmm. confounding factor so I think participant blinding participant quality and then you know just making sure that the analytical procedures that you're using are robust I know that properly calibrating vo2 equipment that's very important when you're making a lot of assumptions, calculating, doing um, indirect calorimetry, things like that, and sample storage, making sure that you're protecting the samples properly if you're if you're measuring certain metabolites. So I think sports science, it needs to continue to try and be more and more rigorous with things like this so that we have... Because the problem is I feel like there's quite a lot of journals and quite a lot of data that I don't believe um (laughs) and lots of studies being churned out and i think we should continue to kind of refine our guidelines as to what needs to be done to make a study actually stand up because otherwise it's being sort of flouted around as evidence and i don't know whether i believe it yeah we'll come back to one just such one study (laughs) in a few minutes it's great to have young researchers coming into the field looking to move it closer to the typical scientific standards you see through most of science you, you, you've touched on this earlier, and I'd like you to elaborate a little more on it. Uh, where do ketones fit in the hierarchy of fuel selection during exercise? So in conditions where you have replete carbohydrate reserves and replete fat reserves, obviously, as well, as well as ketones, it appears that ketones themselves are burnt preferentially, which is quite interesting. And that tallies nicely in with the glycogen sparing and the lower blood lactate that we saw. An interesting effect that I don't know whether we've really been able to to properly tie down the reason for this is that we saw increased intramuscular lipid oxidation with ketone supplementation, which is interesting because ketones are inhibiting peripheral lipolysis. So blood fatty acid levels go down. So contribution of fat 
from the blood is, is lower, but contribution of fat from the muscle was relatively higher with ketones compared with carbohydrates. So it's it's interesting. It seems like the way that Pete Cox used to describe it was reinstating the Randall cycle. So fat and ketones strongly inhibiting carbohydrate use, even though the exercise intensity would normally be rigidly fixed on carbohydrate use. So it's certainly um, a novel state. And yeah, as I said earlier, still quite a lot more to be done. And maybe some isotope labeling studies would give us some interesting clues as to exactly what's going on here. Maybe we need to go back into animal models, perhaps. Yeah, it seems pretty unclear how ketones would increase fat oxidization that way. Mm. Yeah, no, I, um, some of the uh, metabolomic data from the skeletal muscle hinted that perhaps differences in free carnitine could be a factor. But actually, it was an effect I saw in my isolated perfused rat heart models as well, that adding ketones in seemed to cause the level of intramuscular um, triglycerides to fall quite a bit. So it seems odd because ketones and fats are both entering the Krebs cycle as acetyl-CoA. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not clear what's going on there, but it's interesting. Right, because you see nothing like that with ketones produced in the liver, even at high levels. Mm. So if you yeah. fasted for 10 days and you were at a similar level of beta-hydroxybutyrate, you would not see that. No. So I think it's certainly, it's certainly lots of research still to be done to understand this effect better. And unfortunately, it's, it's kind of contributed somewhat to the confusion about whether ketones are fat burning, because when people say fat burning, they don't specify where the fat's coming from. And ketones in inhibit, as I said, peripheral lipolysis, so they're not increasing you fat burning as people would understand it in the conventional way, but does appear that they're increasing intramuscular fat burning, which is slightly different, but, but interesting, as we've just discussed. Right. I think the terminology, ketones and ketone esters, they, we slide back and forth mm. in using those terms, and, and uh, they're not synonymous. No, I think one thing that I'm keen to see and one thing that I'm really keen to engage with the community about is really rigorously defining what we mean when we say ketosis, whether it should always be kind of prefixed with endogenous ketosis and exogenous ketosis, and also drawing a very clear a distinction between being in ketosis and being in a ketogenic state, so your body producing ketones versus just having ketones in the blood, because you can have ketones in the blood as a result of consuming ketone supplements such as ketone esters and ketone salts, but also as a result of fasting and following a ketogenic diet. So I think because the addition of the supplements is relatively novel, there's some confusion. And I think as a scientific community, but also as a lay community as well, the terms need to be tightened up so that people don't get confused. Right. We'll, we'll come back to that topic a little bit later, but I, I agree with you. It's quite confusing. I get a lot of questions about it, and I can tell people are confused. STEM Talk is an educational service of the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, a not-for-profit research lab pioneering groundbreaking technologies aimed at leveraging and extending human cognition, perception, locomotion, and resilience. Brianna, could administration of ketone esters in the context of moderate carb intake overcome the alleged problem of reduced PDH activity associated with keto diets? Have you measured PDH activity? 
Hmm, well, I think I believe that some of the research underlying the decrease in PDH flux with the keto diet is linked to decreased levels of PDH, not only PDH inactivation. So I think that over time, adaptive changes in the muscle occur and you are less able to do glycolysis at a high rate. I mean, is that correct, Ken? Yeah, the and and that's why she used the word alleged, you know, so there's mm. controversy about this and the reduction in PDH is modest and unlikely to be a problem. But I mm. think the point of the question was, could you, by use of the ester for an athlete that was in ketosis, uh, mm. perhaps uh, have the best of both worlds? I think that's what the question was aimed So I think that um, ketones, when you consume exogenous ketones, that it is inhibiting glycolysis and pro that is probably occurring at the level of PDH. So, I mean, but I think metabolism, it's always a question of where's the most pull down a pathway. So I think that with one thing that we've seen in, and as we have some preliminary data coming out of Oxford showing that as you increase exercise intensity, at the high intensities, glycolysis is still proceeding at the same rate. So any inhibition of glycolysis is being overcome as the exercise intensity increases. And some of this preliminary data shows that uh, VO2 max and work max is not decreased by exogenous ketone consumption. So, I mean, we'll wait for those full mm -hmm. results to be published and that can contribute to the discussion. But in terms of have I measured PDH activity, I did some interesting experiments looking at isolated hind limb in mouse. And uh, our research group at Oxford were specialists at this technique called dynamic nuclear polarization. So we label, we were able to label pyruvate, hyperpolarized pyruvate, inject it into the mouse and watch as it turned into lactate and bicarbonate and the sort of we could get a measure of glycolytic flux from that. And we saw that giving ketones did slow down conversion of pyruvate to these other downstream intermediates. So there's definitely a block on glycolysis to, to a certain extent, but whether or not that's detrimental to performance is probably going to be a topic of debate for some time, but I would suggest not. So Brianna, ketone supplementation obviously has a lot of potential to improve the performance of elite athletes, but what about your weekend warrior or average recreational athletes? Can they benefit from ketone supplementation? I think for the weekend warrior and the recreational athlete, the benefit's going to come from protecting muscle protein sarcopenia, which is certainly a problem as athletes get older. But I think as well, the benefit's going to come from reducing people's need to consume refined carbohydrate around exercise. If you can replace some calories from sugar and carbs with calories from ketones, and that's allowing you to do equivalent exercise performance, that's going to be better for your metabolic health long term, rather than just sort of chugging down six goo shots on a two-hour bike ride at the weekend. So I think long-term uh, replacing refined sugar calories with ketone calories could be something that's net beneficial for people, even if they're not trying to perform at an elite mm -hmm. level. Yeah, that's a good answer, I think. Mm -hmm. Recently, a study conducted by a group in Australia reported that an acetoacetate diester actually slightly decreased performance in elite cyclists. Of course, this study was touted by the New York Times as well as many others who perhaps didn't read the whole paper or perhaps weren't able to evaluate the quality of the study design and execution. Yeah, and interestingly, they chose to administer a ketone diester that has never been pharmacologically assessed for dose-to-ketone ratio or even for dose-dependent GI tolerability. 
I'm guessing that one might expect that pharmacokinetic and tolerability studies are critical prior to administering a performance trial. What do you think, Brianna? Yes, um, it was. It's. Uh, it kind of goes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about there being a difference between ketone esters and ketone salts. But even within ketone ester compounds, there being differences in in how they behave inside the body. But I mean fundamentally, they took a very novel compound. I don't believe that there had been any published human uh, uses of this acetoacetate diester in, in publishing the research before. I know it had been taken by individuals, but um, there was a bit of a lack of full pharmacokinetic data and sort of an understanding of how best to use it to elevate blood ketone levels. And also, it doesn't appear that they had had enough, perhaps, of the ester to really, really refine the tolerability. And I know that in Oxford, we spent a long time working on how to make it more more tolerable and you know, modulating the dosing and things like that. So if they had a limited supply, perhaps they weren't able to do that because the gastrointestinal issues, a lot of the athletes reported, in fact, all of the athletes reported some level of symptoms after consuming that ketone ester, which I think is a really big confounder in interpretation of their results. Uh, it's just, it was just a shame to see the title of the paper being focused on the fact that it was the acetoacetate ester that had impaired performance in the title and in the abstract of the paper, not, not focusing as much on the GI issues, no. because I know that as an athlete, I mean, one time, I only, I only ever had one disaster with bicarb, only ever one, you only ever make a mistake once, and I know that you don't just <laughs> sort of add something completely novel that you've never tried before and that is only got limited test use cases, you know, so the dosing isn't super well understood. You don't just chuck something like that into a race day performance and expect it to go okay. You practice these things in training and you titrate your dose up and down, you refine the tolerability and you make it so that it doesn't upset you because that's a massive compromising factor and a massive confounder in interpreting the results of their study. And I, I was just, it was just a shame they seemed to infer that it was ketosis itself, a hyperketonemia that was the cause of that. And I, I'm not sure that, that we can draw those, that conclusion from their results. Mm -hmm. Right. They actually speculated that uh, it was the result of elevated acetoacetate levels, which uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But uh, no. as you mentioned, the title of the paper could have more accurately, but much less interestingly, been Vomiting and Other GI Disturbances <laughs> Impairs Time Trial Performance in Professional Cyclists. Mm. No, I agree. I think there's a lot to unpick with this study. Um, and as I said, it may be different giving beta-hydroxybutyrate versus acetoacetate. You need to properly address the tolerability and ensure that athletes feel okay when they, when they take this. There's a few things that, that need to be kind of clarified for me to be able to interpret those results. But it's really important that people do these studies and we continue to understand the effects of ketones on performance better. I mean, and to go back to your point, Ken, I think I've seen a few studies that have infused ketones and have achieved similar levels of, That's right. of ketones and they've not had GI issues or anything like that. So I think tolerability is a real big issue there. And then, you know, also speculating that the levels of ketone that they reached with that acetoacetate diester were much lower mm -hmm. than we saw in Oxford. I also was a little confused because they reported serum and also whole blood BHB and there was quite a big discrepancy between the two. But the whole blood BHB, which is what is comparable to how we measured it in, in Oxford, was uh, like threefold lower. So it was just over one millimoles, whereas we were achieving levels between three to four millimoles during exercise. And so if you're trying to provide ketones as an extra energy source during exercise, I, I think that that's certainly something that could have affected the results of the study. 
Right. In fact, uh, a lot of athletes that use exogenous ketones blood test, and uh, if they're at one millimolar, uh, they would regard that as too low and would continue mm. to supplement. You know, I thought it was interesting that they uh, were drinking Coca-Cola. They were feeding them Coca-Cola topped off with a ketone ester. Now, that had to be almost a magic pill for vomiting. I mean, it's just hard to imagine. <laughs> that sounds like the sort of thing you'd have uh, an initiation in some sort of college, uh, <laughs> yeah, ketone exactly. lab initiation ceremony, like here, you can have that with a with a side order of fizz and cola. And, and now you've got to go and like cycle on the bike super hard. You know, I think there's no way I'd drink cola right before a race. So, no. I mean, it's a, a little bit of a mystery to me as to why they chose that. But yeah. there you go. So do you think this study will further confuse the topic of ketone supplementation? I think it already has, yeah. unfortunately. So, you know, we've had a lot of confusion since we launched the human ketone last Monday and a lot of people saying, well, you know, you've got one study run by Oxford. You know, these people have a conflict of interest and their study finds this positive result. And then you have this study run by independent people in Australia and the result is negative, you know what are we supposed to believe? And I just think it's the danger of people focusing in on the title and the abstract of papers and also perhaps not doing that much background research into the people who are running the other study as well because their research focuses in on low-carbohydrate diets and the negative aspects of on exercise performance. They haven't yet produced a study that's shown a positive impact. I know and people set themselves up in scientific camps and if I had to put them in a, in a bucket, it would be perhaps they, they don't believe in the ketogenic diet and they don't believe in exogenous ketones. And so um, it's, it's, that's a shame and I hope that, that um, they're more than welcome to test human ketone and get back to us. Well, and uh, see they're, if they... they're sufficiently clever. They'll uh, concoct a way for human ketone not to work as well. But uh, uh, science and religion are two different things. And uh, I think too often, particularly in nutrition science and topics related to nutrition, it, it's an emotional hot button and, and people get all spun up about it rather than uh, calmly waiting to see what the results are. Mm -hmm. But I just, I hope that uh, anyone that feels like they want to run this sort of study further, it feels like they can approach myself or Professor Clark or Dr. Cox or someone that's worked with the ketone esters before and just use us as a sounding board for how they're going to plan to run the studies because these are novel compounds and the understanding of where they're most efficacious is still in its infancy. And so, you know, we're happy to share share ideas and look at protocols because you want to design studies that give you answers to the questions. If you have a confounding factor like tolerability or a confounding factor like levels just weren't high enough, things like that, it's going to confuse the, the discussion even more. So you've got to give these things a fair chance to, to be tested. Yes, uh, absolutely. Returning to an earlier topic uh, about various kinds of sport and the role for ketone esters, you know, I, I don't envision ketone esters helping the performance, for example, of a shot putter. I do envision that it would likely be helpful in sports like cycling or distance running. However, many sports are a mixture, as we talked about earlier, of aerobic and anaerobic work, and uh, perhaps most are. Uh, how do you think athletes will use exogenous ketones in sports with varying degrees of intensity? You know, sports like... Uh, 
sprinting on one side of the scale and then maybe next things like wrestling. You know, where do you see this fitting in? That's a really interesting question. And I think that the benefits of having the option to use exogenous ketones are like are quite broad and could be applied to people at either end of the spectrum. So if you've got a more um, intermittent and high intensity uh, activity such as wrestling or American football or soccer, the games where you're sort of sprinting, stopping, sprinting, stopping. I think that the glycogen sparing and the lactate effects could be very interesting if so long as you can perform equivalent work as whereas in comparison the endurance, the substrate, the glycogen sparing again in the endurance sports, that's certainly going to help you to potentially prolong your performance or have more left in the tank for the end. So I think it's, it's got quite a broad application and I think more research needs to be done certainly um, on kind of more intermittent sports to look at the net effect over a game but I think as well for people competing at a very high level but also people who are just trying to build exercise into their lives using ketones around exercise in terms of recovery anti-inflammatory and, and just general health and wellness I think it's a really really interesting application and I know that some of the strength and conditioning coaches that I've been fortunate enough to talk to from different pro sport teams have been much more excited about that as a strategy maybe even more so than the performance gains because for them just trying to keep people playing each week is is a battle and even if you're not a pro athlete consistency of training is is really important to to be fit and to be healthy and you know most people who aren't pro athletes have also got jobs and now now myself you know I'm training maybe 15 hours a week but also working long hours as well so it's a different kind of strain on my body so being able to take something that's got a kind of a systemic wellness effect in terms of anti-inflammatory properties, antioxidant properties is very interesting. And there's actually a couple of really nice studies that came out recently by Karin or Carolyn Zinn, who's based in New Zealand. And she's looked at the ketogenic diet in service people and also in older, like ex-competitive, no longer competing athletes. And I think it's something that's like neglected from the conversation a little bit that actually for some of these service people and these older athletes, the wellness benefit that they felt on the ketogenic diet for them outweighed any negative impact of the diet on their performance. So they did report that these older athletes, they had a slight decrease in their top end power, but they had, they, she reported a lot of subjective things like improvements in skin condition, improvements in um, like energy supply and things like that. So I think before we kind of, unfortunately, as you said, Ken, the the debate has all kind of got rather hot-headed around, you know, these teeny-weeny little margins in performance. But if you're trying to build exercise into your life and live a, a healthier and more energy-filled and kind of just improve your health and wellness generally, the ketogenic diet and exogenous ketones could be quite an interesting uh, nutritional strategy for these people, not just elite athletes. In fact, I think it's where the ketogenic diet will have the largest effect is for the aging mm. population both in terms of general wellness and uh, signaling effects, and mm -hmm. in particular with uh, respect to avoidance of sarcopenia. No, that's a pet topic of yours. <laughs> so speaking of the ketogenic diet, what about athletes who are already on a ketogenic diet? How will they use ketone esters? I think they're perfectly placed to benefit from supplementing with exogenous ketones because, uh, well, I think they already have upregulated the enzymes involved in ketone metabolism and ketone transport. And it means that they can take on a very rapidly available fuel source without spiking their insulin levels and sort of 
completely derailing their own endogenous ketone production. So rather than these athletes having to take on fat during maybe like an ultra event or something like that, they could use ketone esters and top up ketones as a fuel rather than having to take on fat during exercise. So I think they're able to benefit from this as well, although it's uh, yet to be studied. And I think it'd be really interesting to run the study and see if and how much more keto nesters benefit keto adapted athletes. So Brianna, something that you and I have chatted about in the past somewhat briefly, but uh, I find it fascinating is it's long been known that BDNF increases after exercise. And until recently, it hasn't been known how exercise increases the production of BDNF. And in a fascinating study by Sleeman et al., they showed that HDACs inhibit the production of BDNF, and as we discuss in our dialogue, beta-hydroxybutyrate inhibits HDACs, and this would uh, likely increase the production of BDNF. And this work was done in mice, and uh, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on whether exogenous ketone ester, such as the human product, might also elevate BDNF. I know it's pure speculation, but it's certainly interesting and worth investigating. Yes, I'd be fascinated, absolutely fascinated to run that study. I think that's, for me, one of the most interesting questions going forward. How many of the subset of benefits of having ketones naturally occur as a result of having ketones artificially? And so as the study that you mentioned looked at mice running on a running wheel and measured their BHB and showed that that was like a very critical step in the exercise-induced increase in BDNF. And so I guess the question is then, as you said, can just supplementing with BHB as a ketone ester do the same thing? And that question for me branches off into many, many other avenues. Can we recapitulate the signaling effects of natural ketosis with exogenous ketones? And I think it's tempting to speculate that we will find a lot of those benefits are recapitulated. And that's, for me, that's where it starts getting interesting in terms of how athletes will be able to use ketones going forwards. Because if it's found that ketones have an awful lot of very powerful signaling effects, then that would be the sort of thing for me that would take it away from being just a fuel source into maybe something that, that offers an advantage that you wouldn't get through just following the diet. Right. We know that the endogenous ketones are powerful signaling functions, and many of them. As you say, this is one of the most fascinating questions, open questions about the ketone ester is which of those, if any, will the ester provide as well? And will it be equivalent or better? Most people are not reaching a very high level of ketosis. Most people are one or two millimolars. And with the human ester, uh, it's very efficacious in elevating beta-hydroxybutyrate level. I suppose one reflection on that is that after a one drink of human ketone, depending on whether you exercise or whether you stay sedentary, the levels return to normal within sort of three to six hours. Whereas if you're on a ketogenic diet, you're in ketosis for much right. longer. And so it depends on whether the signaling pathway that you're considering is triggered by an acute high level exposure or whether it requires a chronic exposure to, to really maximally activate that pathway. So, I mean, one example that's quite nice is the effect that I found of the ketone ester on gut hormone release. And so saw that taking a ketone ester drink decreased ghrelin release. So that meant uh, that then that kind of correlated with 
decreased feelings of hunger, increased feelings of fullness and the like. And and actually that is interesting because I read a meta-analysis of all studies of ketogenic diets and appetite and they suggested that the threshold, that there wasn't any extra benefit of going over 0.5 millimoles. But I don't know whether that's true because, as you said, Ken, people following ketogenic diets don't often, aren't always that high and especially sort of for clinical research studies into weight loss people kind of it doesn't really seem like people are that successful at generating like very high levels of ketones with the ketogenic diet always and so um I think it'll be interesting to tease out what is the threshold for all of these different signaling effects. I agree. It's certainly possible with the diet to have very high ketone elevations, but mm. uh, it makes it tough for the people doing the study. You know, there seems to be huge human variation both in yeah. the determination to successfully comply with the diet as well as mm -hmm. individual physiological differences. And also as you adapt over time, whether you... You know, people, I, you, you read comments and talk to people and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm following the same diet and my ketone levels are lower. Is that because I'm better at using them or because mm. I'm producing less or, you know, and changes in ketone excretion over time? Like lots of adaptive processes are happening and it's quite difficult to quantify. And as you said, very big differences in individuals. And in a way, that is where the human ketone ester comes really nicely into its own because we can body weight adjust the amount of ketone ester that we give. You can get very repeatable levels of BHB. So looking for acute effects anyway, like we did with appetite, say, you could start off at three and titrate down and see where they're stopped being a difference. So what the human ketone BHB monoester provides is this really, really interesting tool that allows us to accurately hit levels of ketosis with people for investigation of specific signaling effects of BHB and, and where the threshold is for those things. And for example, another another really interesting one is the effects of exogenous ketones on blood glucose. And have spoken to a lot of other researchers that have worked with ketone salts and other ketone esters, the hypoglycemic effects of exogenous ketones are pretty universally kind of acknowledged and universally discussed. It doesn't appear that there's that much of a dose response. So your blood sugar is never going to be zero. So it kind of like bottoms out. Uh, so when I analysed my data, uh, after about an hour, 90 minutes, all of the data points at each of those time points are no longer normally distributed, showing that everything's kind of bunching up as you start to get to the lower limit of what's physiological. And so I guess the question is, what ketone level do you need to hit to get to that lower level of what's physiological? And then you can adjust your ketone dose depending on whether you're looking for a hypoglycemic effect or an effect to lower blood lipids or an effect on appetite or an effect on HDAC signaling. And, you know, potentially all of those levels are going to be at different levels of ketosis. I think I'm, I'm so excited to see where this is in 50 years time, because I think we could have very specific ketone levels and also you'd be using different ketone compounds to achieve very specific health and performance effects mm -hmm. for different people. I think it's going to hopefully it'll be quite subtle. I, I think it will be, and uh, certainly exciting times ahead. You know, when you think about increasing circulating availability of beta-hydroxybutyrate with a supplement, the real question that we've been talking about for the, maybe the last five minutes is, would this then recapitulate the robust effects of decreasing carbohydrate intake in a ketogenic diet or fasting, for example? And mm. uh, really don't know, but uh, looking at the signaling effects with the ketone ester, I think, will be fascinating. 
Yeah. Unfortunately, when we spoke to the press and tried to explain this very kind of subtle concept, they've ended up saying, well, you say you can get all of the benefits of a keto diet or fasting in a bottle. And that's just not the case, you know, because mainly people associate the benefit of fasting in a ketogenic diet as being weight loss and fat loss and perhaps improvements in metabolic control, insulin sensitivity and blood glucose levels. Those are the most common reasons that people are either fasting or following a ketogenic diet. And and actually, there's some evidence around ketoneesters and blood glucose control and insulin sensitivity. But in terms of fat loss, taking exogenous ketones, they're, they're a calorie containing substance and they're inhibiting lipolysis. And so we don't mean to lead people down the path of saying that this is going to... There was one article that went as far as to say, you know, this drink will melt the fat off you. And I just yeah. put my head in my hands. I was like, no, that's not what we said. That's not what do drink is intended for and it's not what it does. So um, there's trying to cut through the confusion between the ketogenic diet and exogenous ketone supplements is going to prove a mission, I think. Indeed. Yeah, I think I think I saw something about you could eat donuts and pizza and something yeah. else, and then it would melt all the fat off of you while you're eating all of that. It's like that's fantastic. Just, you know, you're sitting there, donuts are go- going in one end, and the fat's melting off at the same time, and <laughs> just this ideal a, scenario. A dozen donuts. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's cl- it's clickbait, isn't it? It's they they get their views on their article. <laughs> yeah, exactly, clickbait. <laughs> Brianna, as noted in a recent paper from a group at UC Davis, ketones, and specifically beta-hydroxybutyrate, potentiated mTOR1 signaling in skeletal muscle. Is there reason to believe that this occurs in other tissues or organs of the body, like liver and brain, where potentiating mTOR might not be so welcome? That I do not know, and I think we need to design some robust animal studies to really look at this, because obviously there's tissue-specific effects of, of many things, and so we can't confirm or deny that as a hypothesis. I mean, it's definitely still to be investigated. And as these results come out, it should be something that we take into consideration with when we're telling people on how to use exogenous ketones and ketone esters. Right. In fact, in the, in that paper, uh, I think it was the Megan Roberts Atoll paper. Mm. Um, it's an excellent paper. It was. And they found that it was absolutely uh, tissue specific. So mm. the, the level in the liver was uh, not elevated. In fact, uh, it was decreased. And, uh, yeah, and so, so that's pretty exciting because those rats seem yeah. to get the best of uh, the or mice. What are they, rats or mice? But anyway, the mice, little I rodents. The rodents, they, yeah. They, they got a good deal, right? So they uh, yeah. they were stronger, longer, further into life than the other yeah. rodents. So they both lived longer and had a longer health span. I think it's a real important subtlety that we're discussing right now, because I think, um, again, from like reflecting on some of the interactions that I've had with with members of the public this week, people assume that like one process and it's always the same throughout the tissues of the body. And it's always, you know, like they don't uh, take into account tissue specific differences in in metabolism and though there are huge profound differences in metabolism in different tissues and so i think we need to be very specific about what which tissue we're talking about as to whether whether you are doing de novo lipogenesis or not or you know all of these different things happen in different compartments of the body and also in different compartments inside the cell um there's, there's, it's just metabolism is very subtle, and um, I think we need to continue to recognize that as we have these sort of discussions going forwards. Um, so, Brianna, what has the public response been to the launch of the human ketone ester, and what's that? What's it been like so far? And what are the common questions that people have been asking? I've seen a number of things through the media and, and through social media. Um, so, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? 
It's been quite exciting because I've been waiting to see how the world would receive it for a very long time now, a number of years. It's been difficult because the media reporting has added to confusion in some aspects. And also, as you said, Ken, earlier, that people are often very evangelical and very heavily bought into whatever nutritional strategy that they already subscribe to. So a lot of people who fast or follow the ketogenic diet think that the idea of taking exogenous ketones is snake oil and ridiculous. And why would you just take them because you just pee them straight out again. And so we've been showing them the data that shows that actually ketones are are metabolized and not excreted at a very high level in comparison with the amount that's ingested. And uh, also a lot of people saying it's not ketosis. These drinks don't put you in ketosis. And again, I think that comes back to a confusion between being ketogenic, which the drinks do not do, and being in ketosis, which is elevated levels of the ketones in the blood, which the drinks do do. And then a lot of people confused about whether ketones can be turned back into fat or turned into carbohydrate. And so I've had to dig out my uh, Salloway metabolism at a glance. It's sort of this big, huge book with all metabolic pathways on and sit down and really trace out my metabolism so that I can explain clearly why metabolically it's not possible for ketones to be turned back into fat or into carbohydrate and trying to educate people around that. Because, And then a lot of people wondering about if you have ketones and carbohydrate which one's going to be burned first and you know there's been a lot of questions Mm. and we spent a lot of time answering and and as we talked about weight loss you know people saying is this drink going to help me lose weight and we're having to explain the reasons why we don't believe that that's you know it's it's kind of intended use at this point and also people being like well if it's so good is it legal Um, and we refer them back to the fact that we've already run this past WADA and WADA has had a chance to review the performance data around the ketone ester and considers it not prohibited at this stage. So um, a lot of interesting questions, a lot of positive feedback from people who have been waiting for something like this to arrive for a long time after hearing about the research now for a while. Um, A lot of elite athletes been in touch with me Mm -hmm. and with human. And that's been really exciting to be able to tell them about the availability of the product now. But then also a lot of confusion and a lot of some negative responses as well, which has been a shame. But I think I've got to learn to have a bit thicker skin and not take it too personally <laughs> because people can get angry behind keyboards and right. you can't have a discussion with them. Everyone is a, a hero behind the keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we talked a little bit about your diet when you were an elite rower, but now that you've retired from competitive rowing and, and that you're living in San Francisco, you're in charge of what you eat. So what does your diet look like now? Uh, So, I mean, it's been nice to just get back to food being something that I can enjoy uh, rather than something that has to be kind of very accurately and precisely measured out to fuel the workout and performance I'm doing. But one thing that I've really enjoyed experimenting with having moved to San Francisco is intermittent fasting is a big part of the company culture at Human. And uh, we have an online community of 8,000 people who fast with us online and they sort of get on and share stories, share support and get tips from one another. And It's been something that I found quite liberating because I feel like there's a a societal construct that we must eat three meals a day, otherwise we're not normal. And for me, I fast at least 24 hours once a week. So I'll go from dinner through till dinner. And it just um, it frees up a lot of time for me to get things done. It really gives me focus for that day. And, I, and then I enjoy food a lot more when I have it in the evening. And so I think that whilst there's been, you know, we've talked a lot about signaling roles of BHB and all the potential health benefits that could come from fasting, uh, and those are being increasingly well understood. I think that kind of 
in terms of getting a healthy balance and, and mentally fasting has been a really, really useful exercise for me coming coming off a very strict kind of diet. It's been it's helped me kind of rebalance my relationship with food. So, yeah, I, I would really recommend people to try intermittent fasting. Yes, uh I would as well. Uh, I particularly like to have super early dinners, and uh, mm. as everyone knows that knows me, mm-hmm. like five o'clock or some ridiculously early hour, <laughs> and then don't eat again uh, until the next day, maybe at lunch or later. So, you know, it's 16 to 24 hours, depending on mm-hmm. how, how I plan it. And I, I think there's real, real benefit there. It's so easy for everyone to implement as well. I mean, even if you uh, have never done it before, you can just start, as you said, Ken, by moving your dinner an hour or a couple of hours earlier and making a conscious decision not to eat in that evening. And then you could just get up and have breakfast. But even by reducing your feeding window by a couple of hours, that's, you know, delivering some really important benefits to your metabolic health going forwards. And you know, there's no need to be grazing all through the night. So I think it's there's very low barriers to entry and potentially quite big upside and reward for people in terms of their health. So I think, yeah, it's very something that I think people should consider. Hmm. Mark Matson uh, did a deep dive on intermittent fasting here on STEM Talk, one of the earlier episodes. I'm not sure which one, maybe episode seven. I I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, don't recall, but he did a terrific job on it. You guys have had so many fantastic guests on STEM Talk and I've had a fantastic time chatting to you and it's been a massive privilege to be counted in among your guests and Nobel laureates and real (laughs) leaders in the field. So I'm hugely, hugely flattered that you'd invite me. Well, today was great too. So, Brianna, it seems that some researchers are no longer only esconded in their labs or offices, but must also have or maintain some degree of social media presence, be that a blog or Facebook or what have you. In some ways, it seems that this is a great opportunity for people to collaborate and vet ideas in a remarkably rapid fashion. But the whole process also seems time consuming and it's really difficult to police the relative quality of the voices at hand. Mm. So... Are you a social media maven or more of a hermit? And what are your thoughts on this whole process? I think up until recently, and until really this week when when we launched Human Ketone, I preferred to kind of keep a minimal presence on myself online and kind of watch people backwards and forwards and share research that I thought was very interesting. But I didn't really feel the need to share too many opinions on social media. I think because it's not peer-reviewed and not there isn't like you said very limited checks and balances it is quite dangerous and I know that over time the more people that I've followed and kind of keep track of on social media you surround yourself with uh, people that agree with you and people that are whose views are aligned with your own in much the same way that politically you put yourself in an echo chamber. Scientifically, you can put yourself in a bit of an echo chamber. And the temptation is when you see someone who disagrees is to bash out a quick, you know, a quick retort or something, something like that. And I think things can spiral and become negative quite quickly. That said, you raise some excellent points in terms of sharing ideas quickly and using other people as a sounding board on the internet and that that is useful. I think the way that we communicate with one another about science uh, and also about virtually everything is is being changed by the increase in social media and so I think perhaps regulation needs to be a little tighter around some things to prevent the spread of misinformation and alternative facts as real facts. You suggest the uh, truth police? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't want to go to 1984 here. Yeah. (laughs) I think 
it's, it's definitely got a place, but we haven't worked out how best to use it yet. I mean, maybe maybe social networks should just be for socialising and rather than, you know, and sharing silly cat videos rather than sharing <laughs> poor quality research without, you know, or, or um, political opinions and things like that. It's, it's hard to say. It's going to evolve and change quite a bit. And I hope that I, I never end up being guilty of misusing social media because I, I don't think that I have up until this point. No, you've been you've been excellent, at least from the commentary that I've seen of yours on social media. <laughs> the thought police have decided that you're innocent. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brianna, we will, of course, provide a link to your research page at Oxford and also to Human in our show notes, as well as links to the papers that we discussed today. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on STEM Talk. Thank you both very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it was our pleasure. And, and uh, it was wonderful talking with you. As ever, Ken. STEM talk. STEM, STEM, talk. STEM talk. STEM talk. STEM talk. STEM talk. Wow, that was really an exciting conversation, and I always love talking with Brianna. Her background is absolutely extraordinary, and it's really cool that she can translate her athletic performance and her athletic experience into the work that she's doing today, and has now become one of the few people who's actually doing human research on ketone esters. She is definitely someone we need to keep on our radar. Perhaps, depending on a unanimous vote of the Double Secret Selection Committee, at some future time, we might bring her back to STEM Talk. Well, I would second that vote. <laughs> if you enjoy this interview as much as we did, I invite you to visit the STEM Talk webpage where you can find the show notes for this and other episodes, stemtalk.us. This is Don Conegas signing off for now. And this is Ken Ford saying goodbye until we meet again on STEM Talk. Thank you for listening to STEM Talk. We want this podcast to be discovered by others. So please take a minute to go to iTunes to rate the podcast and perhaps even write a review. More information about this and other episodes can be found at our website, stemtalk.us. There, you can also find more information about the guests we interview.